think that when parents are happy raising their children, adore their child, when that connection is strong, the child is happy and thriving and be able to, they're able to become their best self and bring their talents and passions into the world and and grow them and contribute to the world. And, and you're raising the kind of people we need more of in the world. Hello, welcome back to I Want Our Job, the podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Laura Markham. So Dr. Laura's philosophy of parenting has helped me and thousands of families build stronger and deeper connection to the children in their lives. We are so excited to share Dr. Laura's thoughts on raising kids with empathy, connection, building strong and trusting relationships with the children in your life. Dr. Laura is the founding editor of ahaparenting.com, a blog 130,000 subscribers strong. And as a parenting expert, she's been interviewed for thousands of articles, including Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Real Simple. In addition to her blog, she shares critical parenting advice in each of her weekly emails that help you build uh, stronger bonds with your kids. We are very convinced she might be the modern day Mary Poppins. If you are a parent, work with kids, or interested in hearing how Dr. Laura's philosophy can apply to your life, we think you'll love this show. Dr. Laura walks us through how to deal with temper tantrums, tips on managing technology with our kids, ideas on daily ways we can build deeper bonds, and so much more. Here is Dr. Laura telling us about her job. Well, I help parents transform their relationships with their children to put the sweetness back into parenting. And when those relationships are strengthened, what also happens is the child is happier and healthier and uh, better adjusted in every way and also more cooperative so easier to live with i love that so much um and as a reader of your blog i can tell you it's changed my life so i'm so excited to be sharing your story um so i'd love to start with tell us kind of how you got on this path um i loved kids and i loved being with kids i did a lot of babysitting later and I always knew that I wanted to have children of my own, and I was very curious about how kids became who they were, and how much it was parenting, and how much of it was who they were born as, and how to get kids to this certain life. So I would say that was that was always an interest of mine. And then when I was a teenager, I read a book by a play therapist named Virginia Axline called Dids in Search of Self, and I found that book transformative. Because he was a child who was impossible to reach by the adults around him. And this therapist was able to reach him and help him feel seen and heard and help him begin to connect with other people, with adults around him. And he was obviously a, a difficult and challenging child. And her ability to see him, hear him, understand him, and acknowledge him is what was transformational. So, you know, Carl Rogers was the person who invented the the field of humanistic psychology. I guess you would call him the, I mean, he was one of the founders of that approach to psychology. And his whole orientation was people just need to be seen. And when you're doing therapy with someone, you're really just being fully present with them and you're accepting them for exactly who they are and you're loving them. And that was what Virginia Axline did with children. 
So when I read that book, I was, I was a teenager, but I was pretty clear that that was, it just drew me like a magnet. So I didn't decide at that point to be a therapist or anything, but it, it really drew me. So when you ask how I got into this, I would say the same way we get into most things, we sort of take one step and we don't know what direction is taking us. And then we take another and then we take another. And before we know it, there we are. Wow, that's a beautiful story. I, I didn't catch the title. What was it? The title of that book? That book was called Dibs, D-I-B-S, Dibs in Search of Self. Okay, God, In Search of Self. God. And you have, like we talked about how you got into this, and I feel like you just have special kind of talent and skills. If you were to define, you know, um, how your upbringing or your, you know, kind of your talents allow you to be great in this role, what, what would some of them be? I would say there are many different parts of my role, right? So one thing I do is I listen to people, to parents, and I see them. I see who they are, and I understand them, and I love them. And so I guess the talent there is to, um, I think... You know, there's probably some part of it that's innate and probably a lot of it that's trained. I don't think I was born a good listener. Yeah. I think it's it's something I still work at, being a good listener. But seeing who someone is is a gift that I've just always had, where I can pretty easily, quickly understand somebody. And I think accepting people as who they are. You know, I've never met a parent who wasn't trying to do the best for their child, and I also am completely convinced that even if you and I met a parent today who we said, oh my goodness, how could they have done that to their child? Really, if I had been born into the same situation that parent was born into, with the same set of genes that that parent was given, the genetics of that parent and the environment of that parent, and had exactly the same experiences they had, I would have done exactly what they did. And so... I'm not excusing ever people who are are um, hurting their children, but I am saying that I think we there's no room for judgment. There's only room for love and for transformation and for for hope. And the way we get to hope and change and transformation is really through love and acceptance. And that doesn't mean you accept everything somebody does, but it does mean you you understand how they could have gotten to that place. And so I guess when you talk about talents, I guess I would say there's a talent there for not needing perfection. <laughs> I, I call myself a recovering perfectionist, but, you know, it's really about not us have to be perfect to be enough, just as we are. And I think that's the work I do with my, inside myself. And it's the, what I try to offer everyone that I am in contact with, certainly every parent that I'm working with. I love that. And, it's, and, as, you, and as I hear you say it, 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 I can see how it comes through in your work, um, how you, you encourage parents that, you know, all these mistakes that they make and losing your temper and all these things, that it's okay, and then you help us walk through it. So on that note, you know, I, I, I always forward your blog to my husband all my friends, and you had one when a kid mm -hmm. is having a tantrum because you don't want to buy them something. Can you walk us through just a couple of tips on how you would handle that kind of situation? 
Mm. Well, uh, if your kid wants something that you're not going to buy them, then uh, and they're falling apart and, and having a tantrum about it, you know, often I would start just by, before it's a full-fledged tantrum, just start by acknowledging how much they want it. Like, oh, you, oh, that does look cool, doesn't it? Wow. Oh, show me how it works. Oh, that is cool. I can see why you want that, sweetie. No, we're not going to buy it today. You know, we talked about that before we came in here. We're getting a present for your cousin's birthday. We're not buying clothes for you today. I know. That's so disappointing. That's so hard. You know what, sweetie? We can write that on your list. And you could call it a birthday list or you could call it a, you know, if your son's name is Evan, Evan's list, whatever it is. And say, and if you still want that when your birthday comes or when, you know, Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever the next thing up is. Um, and, you know, it could be a long way off. You know, maybe their birthday was in May and, you know, we know Hanukkah and Christmas are coming in December and it's June, right? Mm-hmm. But you you say, you know, if you still want it at that time, maybe you'll get lucky and you'll get it. We'll have it on your list. Now, some kids, that's enough for them, mm-hmm. especially if they're in a good mood at that moment. Mm-hmm. But some kids, it's not ever going to be enough. And some kids, it'll, you know, it would be enough sometimes. And other times, they're just like tired and cranky and they just feel like they've had to wait for so many things and nothing's fair and their sister had her birthday last week and they don't have any, you know, whatever. And it's just hard for them and they fall apart. Yeah. And at that point, you, you just allow, because remember, you're not going to change that feeling they're having. The feeling they're having is a feeling that every one of us can understand and relate to, which is, I want so many things that I don't get. And we all know what that feels like. And telling the kid they shouldn't have that feeling, you get so many things already. Why are you being a spoiled brat? You know, even if you didn't use those words. Giving them the impression that there's something wrong with them for wanting? No. You, you, don't, you don't need to do that because that just makes kids feel guilty about having or wanting things. Instead, you say, I know. You wish you could have it. We're not going to buy it today, sweetie. And, you know, the kid might fall apart and cry. That's okay. You know, you might need to pick them up and get them out of there if they're really going ballistic and it's a sore, you know, and they would direct things. But, and you might have to go back later and get the choice of the present. But really, there's nothing, um, there's nothing in their disappointment that is wrong or bad. And if we're giving them the message that they're not supposed to want things, I think it lays the seeds later in life for a, a mentality that's almost like a, um, a poverty mentality where they feel like they're not allowed to have things. And I think it's much better that they know, no, we're not going to have this thing today, but it's okay that you want things. And not only that, it makes the child more resilient because they wanted something, they didn't get it. And you know what? The sun came out tomorrow and everything was okay and they survived wanting something and not getting it. But maybe there's some way they could get something in the future. And at some point your kid's going to initiate with you, well, but I really still want that thing. And you can say, hmm, I wonder if you're ready to start earning some money to get that thing, whatever it is. So even young children can do things that are extra things they would not normally do. Now, 
obviously you don't pay children to do their chores around the house, but maybe there's a big thing that they wouldn't normally do. So when I was a kid, my father said, yeah, you can wash the car. Now, I had to be in charge of all the other kids in the family. <laughs> I had lots of little brothers and sisters who would help wash the car, and I had to split the money with them in whatever, you know, I became very entrepreneurial about how to organize washing the car. But the point is my dad would have paid to have it washed, and so he was happy to pay me to do that. But he certainly wasn't going to pay me to set the table or clean up the dishes, things that were my job anyway, right? But you can do that even with pretty young kids. And so I think this whole idea of um, wanting things, Parents often shame kids for wanting things, and it's totally unnecessary. And I think also emotions, right? Here's a child that's having big emotions because they want something. Most Americans, and this may be true in other places as well, the research I've seen is only from the United States, so I wouldn't, wouldn't extrapolate, but most American parents are very uncomfortable with their child's emotions, so they shame the child for the emotions, or they, um, they will... Uh, criticize it, you know, or tell the child they don't really feel that way. Oh, you don't really hate your brother. You're, you love your brother, right? Really? The kid said he hated his brother. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't really hate his brother, but he's very angry right now. He's angry. Something is making him furious at his brother. So you speak to that. You say, you just said you hated your brother. You must be so mad at him. Honey, what's going on? Right? He's allowed to be angry at his brother. So we do better in raising our children if we can acknowledge whatever feeling they're having, it doesn't mean you change your limits. You won't buy them the toy or let them hit their brother, but they're allowed to have the feelings. Thank you so much. Just that description of how you handled that, I think is like just your description of your philosophy. And, and I, and I know and reading your blog made me think instead of, you know, what's wrong with my child? What's wrong with me as a parent? Why do they keep asking for things to look at it? Like you just described. And I'm glad I'm not the only one who, sometimes thinks that way or when my daughter says, I hate you. Um, I think you have such a good grasp of, yeah. I mean, you know, people who don't read parenting kids books on child psychology, like it just, you're puzzled. You're like, how can they have such anger? But you let us know that it's normal. Like all these emotions yes. that they're having. Yes, it's all part of being human. <laughs> yes, it's all normal. And, you know, every human relationship will have conflict. That's part of being human. And so our job is to learn to express what we need without attacking the other person. And that's true in our marriages. It's true in our work life. It's true with our children. And it's what we want to teach our children with their siblings and their friends and with us. Absolutely. And another part of your, your teachings is when you talk about reminding us that our influence depends on our children's connection to us. And um, can you talk to us about the importance of strengthening the relationship if we want them to listen to us in some ways on how to do that? I know there's so many, but just a little bit about that. Sure. So when you think about influencing another human being, you really have um, very few ways to do it. You can use force to influence somebody. You know, your, your fist in their face will certainly influence them. But we don't want to do that with our children for a bunch of reasons. One is because we don't want to be that person. But another reason is that it teaches kids all the wrong lessons. It teaches kids to be that person. And so we certainly, that's not the way we want to raise our children with force. So the research on influence shows that when we have influence with another human being, it's because of their relationship. That's even true for political influence. If you want someone to consider your perspective politically, if you don't have a relationship with them, 
why would they respect you? Why would they listen to you? Why would they have any um, inclination to be influenced by you, right? So if you think about when you were a kid or when you were younger or even now, who has influence with you? Somebody you respect, somebody you like, somebody you think cares about you, who's in your corner, who understands you. So for children, our ability to get kids to do what we want, to influence them, comes from our relationship with them. It's that simple. So I say that parenting is 80 or 90% connection because without that connection, we can't accept, they won't accept our direction or our redirection or our correction. It's all got to come from the connection. So you ask for ways to connect. One tip I would give parents is to reframe their own idea about this. Many parents think, oh, I have to have quality time with my child. And absolutely, quality time is really important for kids, especially if they usually relate to you with their siblings around, right? If you have a five-year-old and a, and a two-year-old, that five-year-old and that two-year-old both need some time alone with you, not just time while their other sibling is there. So that'd be an example of real quality time. And you wouldn't want that time to be time when you uh, are teaching them something or directing them or redirecting or correcting. You, you know, it wouldn't be like helping with their homework. I would say it wouldn't even be reading a book, which is really about the book. It wouldn't, even though you can have connections, you know, reading, and it's one of my favorite things to do with children, it's not the same because it's so structured as what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is an unstructured interaction where the child leads the way. And you're fully present following the child's lead in a sense. They want to direct how that Lego spaceship gets built. You're not in there saying, oh, don't you think we should put wings on it? But your kid wants to fly with that wings. That's their prerogative. You're the assistant. You're never in charge when you're in that moment with them where you're having that quality time or I call it special time, which I got actually from Patty Whitford, Hand in Hand Parenting. People have used that term even before her. So that's one way that if you had daily special time with your child, you find it really reduces sibling rivalry and it really strengthens your bond and helps your child cooperate more with you. But I don't think it's just about quality time, even though that's the first thing we think of. I think every single thing we do with our kids, and this is what I meant by refraining, every single thing we do with our children, we can put, we can think of it as a way to strengthen the bond. So if we are trying to get the kid into the bathtub or trying to get them to get dressed to go to school in the morning, that can either be an opportunity for a power struggle where we're using force, essentially, or it can be an opportunity to get closer. We are with our kids anyway those hours. Why not use that time to get closer? And the way to do that if you're trying to get your kid to get dressed in the morning, maybe there are a bunch of different ways. So an example would be you connect with them first. When you go into their room, when they first wake up or you first wake up, and you snuggle with them a little bit, and you talk about what they're looking forward to in their day and what you're looking forward to, which, of course, is coming home and picking them up at school or whatever, or doing something with them afterwards, taking them to soccer, whatever it would be. And you have some connection opportunity. That makes it much more likely they're going to get dressed without a problem. But let's say they don't. And let's say, you know, you're trying to, this is your five-year-old and your two-year-old in the high chair. And you're trying to get your two-year-old to get some breakfast into them. And, and you're just wanting your five-year-old to get dressed. 
So maybe the way you need to do that is to have the five-year-old get dressed with you in the kitchen where you're feeding the two-year-old so you can see the five-year-old and they can feel seen and admired and connected with while they're getting dressed. And they can show you the different clothes they're putting on and why they chose those clothes. I can't wait to see what you choose to wear today. And your kid comes down and they have on their green t-shirt, they have a green t-shirt with them and their jeans that they're going to put on or whatever. And you're like, well, why did you pick that shirt? And they tell you. And maybe they haven't thought about it. Maybe this helps them develop more prefrontal cortex, the reflective planning function of the brain, because they have to reflect on why they chose the green one. Now, maybe it's like my son would say, well, it was the top one in the pile. So that's just an example of the way you can use daily life to connect. I love that so much. And it's so exciting because obviously we're not all going to be able to do that all the time. You know, we're busy, we have our moods, but whenever we can, it just, it creates this new world of opportunity. Like you said, you don't have to be somewhere special. You can do it anytime. And personally, I've seen, you know, the, the kids' faces light up when you all of a sudden start joking with them when they need to do something versus yeah. you know, hurry up, hurry up. <laughs> so, um, I love that. Well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned joking. It's- Joking is such a great thing to bring up in the context of of connection because when you're laughing, you're releasing oxytocin into your bloodstream Mm -hmm. along with other feel-good neurotransmitters and hormones. Oxytocin is called the bonding hormone for a reason. It makes us feel close to whoever we're with. So if you're laughing with someone, you're building closeness. So you said, you know, what are ways to be connected? When you say joking with your kids, laughing with your kids, that is a surefire way to build your connection with them. And so when things are are feeling tense, it's often a great way to get kids connecting, to sort of back off the tension and start to connect. Yeah. To get to get some laughter going. Yeah, I think I read that in your blog too. Um and just I, I wanna get say something about technology. Um what uh what are your you know maybe three tips around kids and technology that you find yourself sharing um other than you know or any guidelines? Well, I think the first tip I would give is it's addictive. We know it's addictive. We know, we, and because we find it indispensable in our own lives, we're in, all of us as adults, are in you know, some state of denial about it. We don't want to acknowledge how much we look at our own phones, but the research shows we're addicted. We don't want to acknowledge how we use technology as a babysitter for our children, but, you know, we have very busy lives, and it's so hard the way we live. It's not the way humans were designed to live. We're designed to live in tribes, and in a tribe, your two-year-old wouldn't just have you and the five-year-old to be with. Your two-year-old would be, you know, palling around with the whole group of bigger kids, and the five-year-old would be too, and the two-year-old would be on the hip of some 10 or 11-year-old kid who would be making sure the two-year-old was safe and happy. And so that's the way children are designed, is to be in a tribe. And we're in our own apartment, our own house, uh, our family, and we don't, um, to, to be constantly engaged with our kids and keeping them happy is a tall order. We've got other. We've got to get dinner on the table. We've got to get the clothes washed. We've got to answer an email or a phone call ourselves. And so, it's. Um, <clears throat> I'm just say, the first tip is don't lie to yourself about its addictive nature, technology. So if you can 
really acknowledge that, you can make wiser decisions. That's the first thing I'd say. Um, and wiser decisions would mean, um, well, that would be my second tip. Start as late as you can. Because your child's brain is still developing. And the younger they are, the more development is happening, the more intensive the development. That's why the pediatricians say, do not let your child in front of the screen before they are at least two years old. No, none. No strength. That's what they say. And there's a reason for it. Because the brain, it's, it's a big experiment what we're doing with all these screens. And we don't really know how it's affecting the brain. We know that we're addicted, but we're adults. We're much less um, vulnerable to addiction. So what about that two-year-old, right? So I guess my second tip is I would wait as long as you can to introduce any kind of technology to your child. And I know it's a great babysitter, and I know that before they can read is the time you really want to put them in front of the screen to keep them busy, you know, when they're three, let's say, or four. But actually, the longer you can wait, the better. And then when you do um, introduce whatever the technology is you're introducing, I would say, you know, part of tip two waiting is um, really limit it. Be be clear that I think maybe we'll make step two to, to wait and step three to limit it. Really have rules and boundaries around technology use. So if your kid is old enough to get a cell phone, I would not give a kid a cell phone before you write a contract. There are many contracts online. There's uh, elements of a contract on my website. You can put together a contract you feel good about. But I would A, sign a contract, and I would B, Sit down. Don't just look at it as you get them a phone and then you're done. I mean, the phone gives them access to a whole world that they're not actually yet prepared to handle. So I would sit down with your child every day, after dinner, after school, whatever you do, and go through the phone with them and look at what happened that day. Who did they talk to on the phone and for how long? What apps did they use? What? Who texted them? How was that text? Was it cool to get that text? Did it feel at all anxiety-producing? Maybe the text was something that Made them anxious for some reason, like somebody was bad-mouthing somebody else. Hmm, how might they handle that in the future? So, or, or what happened when this text came in and they were eating dinner and the text, the, the phone was over in the charging station and they weren't allowed to go get it because it's dinner time and you're not allowed to phone at the dinner table. That's one of the rules, boundaries. And so the kid didn't go do it, but then they felt so bad afterwards, like all the other kids were texting back and forth about this cool thing that happened and and they didn't get the text, so, you know, the, 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 it wasn't visible to them until later. And so now they feel so left out or they feel like they were rude to somebody and they didn't answer or whatever. So I think it's just really important to help kids understand life with the phone and understand, oh, in this app, it will show where you're located. You don't want people to know where you're located, right? So this would be a good thing to, you know, every way they use the phone, it's really important that they learn with you in the beginning. So that would be an example of boundaries at that age. But, you know, boundaries when they're, you know, too young for a phone would, you know, be simply, okay, you're seven, you're allowed to use um, screens, but you're only allowed to use screens on weekends, for instance, and only for an hour or two hours or whatever your rule is going to be, plus maybe family movie night. If we're going to do it as a family, that doesn't count as your screen time, your individual time. Or you have to make a decision. Does it count if he's watching his brother play that game? 
if he's, you know, he's not playing himself, but he's watching over his brother's shoulder, does that kind of screen time? No, but then it might be if he has an hour of time and his brother has an hour of time that the two of them spend two hours every single day, you know, playing that game. So is that actually what you want? So I think really getting clarity about the right boundaries and being willing to switch those boundaries if they're not working for you and kids will really resist. But, you know, if it's not working, like you might think it was fine when they were seven, but now that he's nine, he has all this homework and now he really can't do it during the week, the screen time. Maybe it really does have to just be weekends now as a for instance, or now that he's 11, he's got to use the screen every single day for his homework. So how do we let him do that, but keep it from being about, going spending his his whole time doing social media instead of doing homework right there are all these things that will come up that you're going to need to deal with at each step and i would say don't be afraid to be the mean parent and enforce those boundaries and limits on their time on screens because in fact you can't go backwards you know i mean you can go backwards in small doses but you can't go very far backwards and and it is addictive and it does change the way their brain develops we know Oh, the more time kids spend on screens before they're 12, the less they're able to focus and the less well they do academically. And we know it's it's not just because there are confounds. I mean, like, you know, people who don't have a college education, you know, spending more time on games than so their kids do and they don't do as well academically. No, it's actually that it changes the brain's ability to focus and concentrate. And, you know, none of us would, just to keep our kids busy, damage their brain in a way that would stop them from focusing and concentrating, we would never do that. And yet we, as a society, we lie to ourselves about how destructive screens are. Just one more. Um, what about setting and keeping boundaries, like with, um, you know, like seven to preteen, any kind of tips on how you set yourself up for success? So you've got your kid and you, the kid is at least seven from what you said. And they, they know the basic family rules. Like the rules are they're, that we're kind to each other, for instance, would be a ba- like probably the most important family rule. They know that. And they are not being kind to their sibling, let's say. Because so they're angry with their sibling. Or they're jealous of their sibling or whatever. There's a reason, but they're not being kind. And you hear them make this mean remark to their sibling as an example. Mm-hmm. And so how do you enforce that limit or that boundary or that expectation that we're kind to each other? I think you... Don't let things go unremarked, first of all, because most of the time when kids act out, well, the research shows that when kids act out to a sibling and we don't jump in and point out what's going on and reinforce our family rule, what happens is kids assume it's okay to do it. Even if you really were not paying attention, you were making dinner, you weren't even, you were listening to your podcast while you made dinner. You didn't even hear what he said. But if you're in the room or even nearby, The research shows that the children take it, both children, as a tacit endorsement of the mean behavior that you didn't interrupt it. So that's one reason to interrupt the bad behavior. But there's another reason, which is that often when kids act out and they, they do things that they know they're not supposed to do, they're, if you don't say anything, they escalate their behavior because they're actually doing it for a reason. Right. Their, their reason is they're either having a problem they need your help with or they're really upset about something and they don't know how to to they don't know what to do with those upset feelings inside them. So they're looking right at you and breaking the rules. Right. And if you ignore that, they're going to escalate and do something worse. So 
I would always jump in to reinforce your family rules. So when you say boundaries, um, you might, so in this case, the, the child who's being mean to the sibling, whether they're seven or 11, you would say, um, wow, those are some words that could hurt. And then you say, our family rule is be kind. I don't know if your brother thought that was kind, what you said. And then you look at the brother because you don't want the brother who's just, the, he's just been the one who's been on the receiving end of the meanness. You don't want him to feel like a victim who can't protect himself. So you then immediately coach the brother and he sets the boundary, which is you say to him, you know, you don't look like you really liked what your brother said. You, what, you know, say it's two boys. What your brother said, you can tell him, ouch, don't talk to me that way. You can tell your brother if you don't like what he said. So you're coaching him to set the boundary in that case. If it's something that is just a family rule, like, you know, they didn't, I don't know, they didn't do their chore before dinner. Um, I would not think that's something to go to the mat for, in a sense. It's certainly not something I would make, I would certainly remind them, but I wouldn't make a huge deal of it in the sense of, you know, our family rule is you do your chores. It would just be, hey, hon, dinner's going to be ready in five minutes. I don't think you fed the dog yet which is their chore and your kid's like oh mom I'm busy with this I know but your dog can't feed herself honey she's hungry look at her expression she doesn't have any hands we have to take care of her that's your job so you know you're you're reinforcing it now probably he's already heard that lecture from you before and you don't even have to do a lecture you just say sweetheart dinner in five minutes feed now dog needs food and that's it and you're, you will have to remind your kid over and over and over again and you won't let them sit down at the table unless they fed the dog first. That's the rule. But you're just accepting that that's the way parenting is. You're going to have to remind the kid over and over. I think being mean is a whole different level of things, right? So the way people treat each other, those are boundaries you really need to be on top of. Whereas, and certainly getting the dog fed is a boundary you have to be on top of. But it's nothing that, um, it's nothing that has that kind of passion behind it. You can just be patient and remind them over and over and that's okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, you're so good at this. I'm smiling. It's like talking to Mary Poppins. Like sometimes I wish I had an app <laughs> where I could say, okay, what would Dr. Laura Markham say and have it like, you know, read me the text and then I'd say it right there to them. You know, I would love to design that app. I just don't even know where to begin. You know, like people need so many different um, interventions. Like where would you even begin to have right them say, oh, this is the, I, I experimented for a little while, like Alexa. What do I say when my kid says that? And I came up with some answers. But, you know, you'd have a a million responses, right, for for the different things. Well, you could do, you know, by age. And then then once the age is there, you could, you know, do like, you know, not listening or chores or things. I think you could think of it. I'd use it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That that sounds like so much fun to develop that. I would love to do that. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, then talk to us. We're going to link to your books and your blog. But any other resources that you want to tell Hmm. Well, my, I have three books, Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids, Peaceful Parent, Happy Siblings, and the Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids workbook. So the difference in those books, obviously the sibling book applies the ideas of peaceful parenting to working with more than one child. Um, the Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids book is the three big ideas that make up peaceful parenting and how to apply them at each stage of your child's life. So it has the different ages in it. And the workbook is to give you more practice in the hardest parts of this kind of parenting. So the whole first half of the book is really about you 
and how you can return yourself to calm when you're getting irritated at your child or when you've just lost it and had your own full-blown tantrum. And it includes everything from, you know, self-care to mindfulness practices that you can do on the run and, you know, so how to monitor your own moods and how to work through big stuff. Like if you have a, an issue with, the, you know, having a temper or if you, if you have, if you're grieving, if you're, you know, frustrated all the time, different things like that. So it helps you work through that. And then the rest of that book, the workbook is how to connect with your child. There's a whole section on connecting with your child, including games to play with your child to get laughter going. And the last part is how to set boundaries, how to set limits and expectations with your kids, how to enforce those. And, you know, it gives you the answers for how to enforce it, depending on, you know, sometimes kids get really angry. Sometimes kids just ignore you. You know, what is your kid doing in response and how you can um, get your kid to uh, pay attention and to listen and cooperate with you even when they don't want to, even a strong-willed child. So that's the workbook. And then the other resource for people is my course. So I teach an online course. I offer it three times a year. The next one, well, they're always offered in September, in January, and in um, April. That's when they begin. They're three months long. But once you are in the course, you have lifetime access to it, and you can take it over and over again for free. And the course includes a Facebook page where they can be part of a community of parents who've taken the course and ask questions. And the person who runs it is a parenting coach who I pay, I've trained her and pay her to be the Facebook admin for this course. And she's wonderful. And the community is wonderful. People are very supportive. And the course itself is, as I said, 12 weeks of um, really honing in on each area. So on setting limits and boundaries and expectations is one of the weeks. Connection with your child, one of the weeks. So there are 12 weeks. And one of the weeks, the very last week, is a live call with me where they get to ask me questions. Uh, so it's a very intensive course. It even has, in addition to those lectures, which you can listen to at your own convenience, it also has 60, 60 meditations that are four minutes long that you listen to five days a week. There's a little meditation over the 12, the 12 weeks of the course, and they are designed to rewire your brain so that you listen from beginning, you know, one after another, they build on themselves. And they're actually designed to help you to not just to calm yourself better, but to love yourself more and to feel more gratitude, to feel happier. And people, the, the, they're designed specifically to help you reach a deeper, wiser part of yourself. And I hear from parents that they work. They, they really rewire your brain. So... Uh, and there's more to the course than, than what I've described. But those are that's um, those are the big highlights of it. So, and you get a free copy of one of my books too. Your choice. Um, so, it's um, I think that if they went on the AHA Parenting website, they can find the link for the course. And even if it's not starting till September, you can register, you know, um, in advance, and then you're you're you get the book and you're ready to go uh, when the course begins. Thank you. Well, I, I think your work is just so important and life-changing, and I'm so excited that we got this chance to get tips live from you. Um, and since this is a career site, what do you have any advice for women who want careers in child development, like career paths you see, roles that um, you think might be growing, um, entry points, um, maybe, I don't know, path of study? 
Hmm. Well, I where unfortunately our um, our society doesn't value children as much as I would like it to do, and doesn't value parents as much as I would like it to do. But I do think that there are wonderful opportunities, as you know, depending on what your interest is. If you want to work directly with children. Being a teacher is a very high calling, and there are many different ways to be a teacher, many different kinds of teachers to be, and you can work with many different ages. And so I, I highly recommend early childhood education because I think that's the time that kids most need us there. But really, being a high school teacher is an amazing experience, uh, talking to high school teachers. So I think anything in between. Um, I think that... Um, if you wanted to get more education to work as a therapist, the the growth industry with children and parents is an attachment. So that attachment has become really the theoretical underpinnings of our understanding of children, that we now really see child development through the lens of attachment. And so often what has gone wrong between a parent and child is actually about attachment. And we can change that. And so working with children who are challenging children and their parents and having some education uh, about attachment and seeing the relationship through that lens, I think is um, transformative. So I would absolutely encourage anybody who's thinking of doing the kind of work I do or some version of that, working with parents and children to, to make sure that that's part of their education and their approach. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Mm, It was my pleasure, Paulina. So nice to meet you.